Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report. I'm Diane Rebecca here on WMCK.FM Internet Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. Heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. Also, podcasts of these shows are available on iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. So if you miss the regularly scheduled show, you can always visit these podcasts at any of those locations. Again, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. All right, so... Um, We deal with consumer issues here on the show. If you are a first-time listener, we deal with um, anything consumer-related. We'll deal with reviews. Uh, Sometimes, um, you know, we'll go over consumer news, any latest consumer news. And if you have any ideas on anything you would like to hear on the show, any products or services, you can email me at consumerreviewreport.com at gmail.com i'm also on facebook at consumer review report and on twitter at crr in mckee sport also if you have any comments on any of the um on any of the things that we have to say on the show uh, any of the products or services that are mentioned you can also email at consumer review report at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at, I'm trying to fix my mic here. (laughs) Okay, I think that's gone. All right. Uh, We're also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So today, I just wanted to keep it light and fun, uh, sort of. Um, Today, we'll be talking about just gadget and things. I was going over some of the Consumer Report Magazine's um, Ask the Experts sections. And uh, so I compiled some of those. Uh, So any questions on any gadget and things such as polarized sunglasses or convention ovens, uh, things like that. So we'll go over that later. And then I uh, have audio from a video from Theo Joe. We've heard him on the show before. And his uh, video is entitled, Nine Totally Unnecessary Overkill Gadgets and Tools. So we'll uh, listen to what he has to say on those. And then if we have time, which I think we will, um, you know, we we thought that the coronavirus things were kind of on the outgoing slope, I guess you could say, when we were, uh, I don't know, what was it, June, when we went into green phase, but then all of a sudden, it kicked back up, kicked back up again, so uh, I have some, uh, compiled some coronavirus questions um, from the Consumer Report magazine, Ask the Expert sections of each issue. <clears throat> Not each issue, but some of the issues that um, that were the past issues. So we'll go over that. So um, hopefully we'll have time for that because I guess we're just uh, not seeing the end. I mean, it seems like every day, even though 
we thought we were doing okay when we went to green phase and all of a sudden now it seems like it's getting worse and worse and uh so we'll have to go over those again to uh you know freshen up your reminding minds about <laughs> you know the coronavirus and you know hand sanitizers and things like that so we'll go over that but in the meantime <clears throat> well before I get to any of that, there was an article this week uh, from CBS News. They had updated it on July 29th, 2020. And it was entitled, uh, Mystery Seeds from China are Landing in Americans' Mailboxes. So, uh, this is so strange. Uh, the USDA and agricultural officials across the U.S. have issued warnings about unsolicited shipments of foreign seeds and advised people not to plant them. Officials are concerned the mystery seeds, which appear to have originated in China, could be invasive plant species. CBS News has confirmed that residents in all 50 states have now reported receiving suspicious packages of seeds. USDA is aware that people across the country have received suspicious unsolicited packages of seed that appear to be coming from China, the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspector Service said in a statement today. Well, actually Tuesday he said that. It said, It is working closely with federal and state partners, including Customs and Border Protections, to investigate. Uh, the agency tweeted, Please don't plant seeds from unknown origins. State agriculture officials in Virginia warned invasive species wreak havoc on the environment, displace or destroy native plants and insects, and severely damage crops. Taking steps to prevent their introduction is the most effective method of reducing both the risk of invasive species infestations and the cost to control and mitigate those infestations. In Kentucky, the State Agricultural Department was notified that several residents received unsolicited seed packets sent by mail that appeared to have originated in China. Agriculture Commissioner Ryan Quirrell said earlier, <clears throat> The types of seeds are unknown and could be harmful, he said, stressing they should not be planted. We don't know what they are, and we cannot risk any harm whatsoever to agricultural production in the United States, he said. We have the safest, most abundant food supply in the world, and we need to keep it that way. At this point in time, we don't have enough information to know if this is a hoax, a prank, an internet scam, or an act of agricultural bioterrorism, he said. Unsolicited seeds could be invasive and introduce unknown diseases to local plants, harm livestock, or threaten our environment. APHIS said that, USDA is collecting seed packets from people who receive them and will test the contents to see if they contain anything that could be of concern to U.S. agriculture or the environment. But it also said that as of Tuesday, it didn't have any evidence indicating this is something other than a brushing scam where people receive unsolicited items from a seller who then posts false customer reviews to boost sales. In North Carolina, the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services said it was contacted by numerous people who received seed shipments 
they did not order. The agency said the shipments were likely the product of the international internet scam known as brushing. According to the Better Business Bureau, foreign third-party sellers use your address and Amazon information to generate a fake sale <clears throat> and positive review to boost their product ratings, said Phil Wilson, director of the state's plant industry division. New York Commissioner uh, Agricultural... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, New York Commissioner of Agriculture... Richard Ball said in a statement Monday that his office also fielded a few queries from residents who got unsolicited packages allegedly sent from China that are marked as containing jewelry, but which actually contain plant seeds. Ball confirmed that the USDA was investigating and told residents not to handle or plant the seeds. He said anyone who gets a packet of seeds should store them safely in a place children and pets cannot access. Then email the USDA immediately at erich, that's E-R-I-C-H dot, I guess it's a L, yeah, L dot Glasgow, G-L-A-S-G-O-W at USDA dot gov with their full names and phone numbers, pictures of the packaging, and any other relevant information. The USDA later urged anyone who received an unsolicited seed package to contact their state plant regulatory official or APHIS state plant health director immediately. Please hold on to the seeds and packaging, including the mailing label, until someone from your state department of agriculture or APHIS contacts you with further instructions. Do not plant seeds from unknown origins, it said Tuesday. Now, yesterday, MSN.com reported the U.S. Department of Agriculture has identified 14 seeds that have been mailed to the U.S. from China. They include Morning Glory, hibiscus and roses, as well as herbs and vegetables. Anyone with unsolicited seeds is urged not to plant them and to alert a local officials. So that has been going on this week, I guess. I have not received any. So if you have, uh, you might want to contact the agricultural people to see if your seeds, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if they even give them back after they figured out it was flowers and vegetables and herbs. Uh, uh, you know, would they give them back after they find that out? I'm not sure. All right. So <clears throat> there you go. Something going on from China. <laughs> I've not heard enough from China in the last uh, few months or so. I, you know, why don't they just leave us alone for crying out loud? <laughs> That's what I'd say. All right. <laughs> All right, let's go on to talking about gadgets and things. Now, here's some Consumer Report magazine Ask the Experts section. They have an Ask the Ex Experts section in all of their uh, issues of magazines that have about two or three questions in them. And so I just compiled uh, some of the questions into one uh, section, I guess you could say. They're not always... This organized, I had to organize this. The questions are like, uh, you know, the two or three questions have nothing to do with one another. Sometimes they have to do with finance. Sometimes they have to do with, uh, 
you know, uh, somebody's grill or something like that, or how to operate your car. <laughs> no, there wasn't any that, um, <laughs> there was no questions on how to operate the car. I'm just being facetious, but I'm just saying there's car questions, you know, and things like that. So here are some questions about gadget and things. My fridge is making smelly ice. What's wrong? If your ice maker is producing funky smelling ice, it's very likely that you have a fridge with a single evaporator, which is common in most refrigerators. That means that in order to cool your food, air moves between the fresh food and freezer compartments and carries odors with it. <clears throat> we conducted a test on a single evaporator refrigerator where we filled the fresh food compartment with garlic, then made ice in the freezer says Joe Pacella, CR's refrigerator test engineer. Sure enough, the ice didn't just smell like garlic, it tasted like it. To avoid icky ice, clean the ice collection bin according to the manufacturer's instructions. Usually a mixture of baking soda and warm water will do. Then put baking soda boxes in both the fresh food and freezer compartments as close to the ice maker as possible. These will absorb food odors to minimize their travel into the ice maker. Next time you shop for a fridge, consider upgrading to one with a dual evaporator, typically found only on more expensive units. That means the fresh food and freezer compartments have their own dedicated evaporators and no air passes between the two spaces, leaving your ice odor free. All right, now I never had a fridge with an ice maker, but I may one day, so that's handy information. All right, the next question is, I've heard conflicting advice about preserving laptop battery life. What should I actually be doing? There is indeed a lot of misinformation floating around about how to keep your laptop battery working longer. That's because battery technology has improved rapidly and a lot of old advice stays in circulation even though it doesn't apply anymore to newer technology, says Rich Fisco, head of electronics testing at CR. Gone are the days when it was important to let batteries drain completely, then charge them all the way up to 100%. That's now unnecessary with newer lithium-ion batteries, which power practically every laptop and smartphone, Fisco says. For long-term battery health today, the best tactic is to avoid charging it all the way to 100% or letting it run down to zero. Oh, wow. To avoid doing that. Huh. See, mine is always at 100% because I leave it plugged in like as much as I can. And so maybe that's not a very good idea, huh? All right, so <clears throat> they said avoid charging it all the way to 100%. Or letting it run down to zero, says Antoinette Asadillo, who oversees CR's computer testing. Ideally, you want to keep your battery charged between 20 and 80 percent. Turning on your laptop every day isn't necessary either. It's, uh, I don't know what they meant to say there. It's to leave your, oh, it's good to leave your computer in standby mode for a few days at a time. Asadelio says, uh, however, it keep, uh, to keep it running smoothly, a full reboot every few days is still a good idea in order to receive updates and clear your RAM. So I, I guess that meant 
it's okay to leave your computer in standby mode for a few days at a time. But you probably do want to do a full reboot every few days. And so in that way, you can receive updates and clear your RAM. All right, so there you go. Lots changed in battery life um, procedures. So another question was, can I use my space heater in my chilly bathroom? Now that doesn't necessarily apply right now in 90 degree weather, but you might, you know, want to in the winter time. And everybody seems to be scared of, you know, their space heater because they, they know that it can cause fires, uh, you know, and people don't want that. But this one wants to know, can they use their space heater in my chilly bathroom? So the answer from Consumer Report Magazine is this. It's best to keep electrical appliances such as space heaters away from water sources, but we get that it's also not ideal to step out of the shower into a frigid bathroom. So if you use a space heater, exercise caution. First, make sure your bathroom has a ground fault circuit interrupter, GFCI outlets, which all bathrooms since 1975 have been required to have. Well, except for mine. When I moved into my house, uh, 2002, um, it did not have one. <laughs> so, and that's kind of shocking because I would think the inspector would have told them that they would have had to have something like that. But if this was required since 1975, right? All right. So to prevent a fatal electric shock, a GFCI outlet constantly monitors current flowing through a circuit and will automatically shut the power off if it detects even a small amount of stray current. To identify a GFCI outlet, look for two buttons that say test and reset. It's also safest if your heater has an appliance leakage current interrupter, ALCI plug. Chris Reagan, who oversees CR's space heater tests, says that ALCI plug also monitors and safeguards against differences in current, adding extra protection. Only two of the 46 space heaters in the in the Consumer Report magazine ratings today have an ALCI plug, and one of them lacks a tip-over switch, a safety feature that shuts off the heater if it gets knocked over. The DeLonghi HVF3555TB, which is $60, has both features and performed well in our tests though its availability may be limited by the end of the year. And like many space heaters, we've evaluated the area where the heat exhaust can get burning hot. So we don't advise using this model if you have small children or pets. Okay, so there you go. Now, <clears throat> I didn't even know they sold heaters without the tip-over switch anymore. I thought that was kind of a standard thing for space heaters. But if you didn't want to use an electric space heater, they do have uh, little propane heaters that take little like one pound propane tanks. So I don't know, that might be better for you if you have a chilly bathroom to heat up. All right. So here's the next question. When should I use my oven's convection function? Many newer ranges and wall ovens offer a conven convection setting, <laughs> typically with two modes, baking and roasting. 
When you turn on either of these modes, one or more fans inside the oven cavity circulate hot air while your food cooks. Now, certain ovens also have an extra heating element, often dubbed true convection. Manufacturers claim this helps to heat and brown food more evenly and can reduce the overall cooking time. But in practice, that's not always the case. The success of convection baking in our tests is hit or miss, says Tara Casaragola, Consumer Reports test engineer for ranges and wall ovens. Some ovens, such as the LG LRG3193ST, do better with convection baking mode turned on, but others do best simply on the convectional bake setting. All right, so Casaragola adds that in some cases, the same oven might convection bake beautiful cookies, but still botch a cake. She advises referencing the owner's manual for your range. Some instruct you to shorten the cook time or reduce the temperature when using convection mode. It's a good idea to do a test run of a favorite baking recipe to see how it affects your baking. However, convection roasting, which may have a different name such as pure convection depending on the brand, is another story. This additional convection setting offers, uh, offered on models such as GE Profile PBD 911 SJSS is best for crisping and browning large cuts of meat and is less fickle. When using convection roasting, you can generally turn down the oven temperature 25 degrees Fahrenheit below what the recipe calls for and start testing for doneness earlier than you might think until you're accustomed to how your oven handles the job. <clears throat> yeah, I don't have that on my oven either, that option to do that. So everything's just uh, <laughs> easy peasy. The less electronics you have and the less uh, gadgets you have, I think the easier uh, life can be because you don't have to constantly be after that to see if it's working and how do you work it and you know, uh, then you don't have to do these experiments to see how it's supposed to work. So, there you go. <laughs> All right. Next question. I'm getting a smart thermostat. Does it matter where in the house I place it? The ideal placement for any thermostat is on an interior wall in a common space away from anything that could create temperature extremes, such as direct sunlight a drafty window, or an air vent. Avoid placing a thermostat in an isolated room that tends to get colder or hotter than the main part of the house. All of this helps the thermostat get a more accurate reading, says Peter Anzalone, who tests thermostats for CR. <clears throat> the path of least resistance is to place your new thermostat in the same spot as the old one where the wiring is. If it isn't an ideal location, you'll need to pay an installer to rewire. But one easy, inexpensive solution without rewiring is to see whether your new smart thermostat is compatible with remote temperature sensors, small wireless devices that can be put in other rooms to monitor temperatures, enabling more balanced heating and cooling. The Nest Thermostat E, $170, for example, offers separate Nest temperature sensors for $39 each. Yeah, see, 
our rooms on the second floor get so much hotter than the downstairs so it probably would help to have some sensors up here but uh, yeah we don't have a smart thermostat we have a digital one and uh, that's about it <laughs> so again we're behind the times when it comes to technology with our refrigerator our oven and now our thermostat <laughs> all right here's the next question what does a locked or unlocked phone mean? A locked phone means it will work only with your current carrier service, says Richard Fisco, who oversees electronics testing at CR. If you bought a locked iPhone through AT&T, for example, <clears throat> you'll be able to use it only with AT&T service. Unlocking it allows you to move to a new network, but you can keep using your original carrier with an unlocked phone. If you didn't request an unlocked model when you purchased your phone, it's probably locked. Every carrier has a different unlocking process, but most are pretty simple. Phones bought through Verizon, for example, are automatically unlocked 60 days after the phone is purchased. AT&T, on the other hand, first requires that your device is fully paid off and that you aren't in an active service contract Either it ended or you forked over an early termination fee. Eligible customers can submit a form at att.com slash device unlock. AT&T will confirm that your phone is unlocked within two business days of a confirmed request. Other providers such as Sprint may require you to call customer service to start the process. For instructions by carrier, go to cr.org slash unlock zero one two zero all right so the next question is how can i tell whether an email is a phishing scam phishing scams emails that often impersonate companies or people you know to trick you into giving up information or downloading malware can surge around seasonal holiday times and major sporting events says cr's senior tech editor Bree Fowler. As the annual NCAA March Madness tournament begins, so this was probably in March, and as we know, it never began. <laughs> so uh, as it begins, but maybe next year, it'll apply next year. For example, basketball fans who are eager to fill out a bracket with friends, as some 40 million Americans do, should be on guard. Be wary of emails asking you to click on a link to a tournament-themed website that isn't well-known, especially if it, is, if it prompts you to confirm your identity by logging into Gmail or Facebook or another social media site. That could be a sign that it's a scam. Before you click on any link, hover your mouse over it to reveal the full address, which can expose signs of fraud. And... Dot .ru at the end, for example, means the site was created in Russia. Misspellings are another tip-off to a fake website. If the email seems to be from a retailer or company you know, open a new window in your browser, search for the retailer's web address, and compare before clicking. And never download an attachment from a sender you don't know. It might be malware or type confidential info into a form attached to an email. The sender can potentially track what you enter. If payments are involved, it's a good idea to directly call or text the person to confirm the amount and method. 
If you suspect you encountered a fraudulent site or email, you can report it at ftc.gov slash complaint. All right. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing that, you know, before you click on any link, hover your mouse over it to reveal the full address, which can expose sides of fraud. And so this is what they've been teaching us at our company at work that, you know, they send us these fake emails. And if we open them, we have to go through some kind of training thing uh, because the idea is not to open them, even though they might be from the IT department or human resources department. You may think, uh, you know, oh, I'll open it. It must be a safe link, except for somebody sent it posing as a human resource person or posing as the IT person. And if you hover over the link, you know, maybe the uh, company's name not spelled right or, you know, something's just odd about the actual link. So that is sound advice. Hover your mouse over it to reveal the full address, which can expose signs of fraud. All right, next question. Which is better, a whole house water filter or one that goes under the sink? If your goal is to have filtered water to drink and cook with, an under sink water filter is probably all you need. Filters certified to the NFS slash ANSI 42 standard effectively remove odors and off tastes. Those certified to the NSF slash ANSI 53 standard remove lead and other contaminants. If your annual water quality report shows that you have a wide range of contaminants or bacteria in your water, an under sink reverse osmosis water filter is your best bet. Whole house water filters different from softener systems uh, for hard water are best for removing large sediments such as sand and iron. The latter can stain sinks and clothing. These filters can also improve the taste of water, but most basic ones don't filter for the contaminants that under-sink filters do. Some advanced whole house purification systems can remove potential hazards such as volatile organic compounds, pesticides, and heavy metals, but they're expensive and can be overkill, says John Galliatafiori. (laughs) I probably just botched his name there. The Associate Director of Product Testing at CR. For example, you probably don't need filtered toilet water. If you're worried about sediment as well as contaminants in your water, he recommends pairing a basic, less expensive whole house filter with an NSF ANSI certified point of use filter for the water you ingest. And here is the last, I believe it's the last gadget question here polarized sunglasses will protect my eyes right polarized lenses can help you see better on bright days thanks to the light blocking filters they contain they do this by reducing glare caused by light reflecting off a shiny horizontal surface such as the ocean or a snowy field but on its own polarization won't shield your eyes from the sun's ultraviolet rays, which have been linked to vision problems such as cataracts, macular degeneration, and even cancerous growths. So be sure any polarized pair you are interested in also has a UV protection label, says Scott Brody, MD, PhD, professor of 
ophthalmology at NYU Ligoni Health in New York City. The American Academy of Ophthalmology recommends sunglasses that block UVA and UVB light as completely as possible, which will be labeled 100% UV protection or UV 400. I didn't even know there was such a thing as polarization sunglasses. So there you go. Another one, that, another piece of technology that I'm not up on. All right. So that does it for our gadget and things. Ask the experts from the Consumer Report magazine issues. Now let's go ahead and go to the audio from Theo Joe's video, Nine Totally Unnecessary Overkill Gadgets and Tools. So let's go ahead and find out what those are. How's it going guys? I'm Theo Joe. And like most of you over the years, I've definitely bought things that I do not need. They were completely unnecessary. So that's what we're gonna go over today, specifically having to do with tech gadgets. Just things that are completely overkill, impulse buys, probably spent too much on it, but I'm glad that I have them nonetheless. And I've got nine of them for this video. So nine overkill gadgets, tools, whatever you want to call it in this video. So let's get started with number one. This is going to be the most expensive thing on the list. This is the Bosch Detect 150 wall scanner. It's essentially a completely overkill stud finder, but it can do obviously a lot more than just finding studs. Now, the reason I was inspired to buy this was when I was installing the LG TV, you may have seen me do a review of, I obviously had to find the studs, and I have several stud finders, because stud finders are basically the printers of the tool world, where no matter how much you spend on one, it never exactly works perfectly, and that's even the case with this, but hopefully this works a little bit better. Basically, this uses radio signals where you put this against the wall and roll it against the wall, and it will do all sorts of fanciness to figure out what's behind the wall, not just in terms of a stud, but it also has lots of other modes that I will never use and are completely unnecessary for what I bought it, such as concrete, wet concrete, deep concrete, in-floor heating, drywall, metal, and a signal view mode, which literally just outputs the raw signal waveforms of what's behind the wall. So you can kind of just figure it out for yourself if you really want to. And like I mentioned, you basically roll this thing against the wall, and as you roll past something, it will show up as an object, and then when you roll back onto it, it'll show you basically the center of that thing. And it seems to work pretty well, at least in ideal conditions. I mean, I would really hope so, considering how much it costs. You can see here, this is an example of the stud right behind the TV. You basically roll it past, it seems pretty consistent, it shows right up pretty clearly, and then it will show you the center of it as you roll over it. So this is a lot nicer than other stud finders that just kind of beep when you're over a stud and you can never really tell if it's exactly on the center or whatever. But even this thing is not perfect, and because it uses radio waves, it is susceptible to certain kinds of radio signal interference. And sometimes I've noticed if I get too close to, I guess, smart home devices like smart light switches and stuff, even if it's not right next to it, it'll say strong radio signal detected and then just turn off and then you can't use it around those things, which is kind of annoying. So yeah, I still have yet to find a stud finder that truly works perfectly every time. I don't think such a one exists. All right, so up next, we have a completely unnecessarily expensive and overkill thermometer that you can buy. This is, from what I understand, the kind they use in a lot of hospitals, doctor's offices. This is the Welch Allen SureTemp Plus 960 model. It's an oral thermometer. You're like, why did you spend so much on a freaking thermometer? I know I asked myself that too, but with the whole coronavirus going around, you know, there were times where I was feeling paranoid. I'm like, oh, I feel a little bit off. Do I have a fever? And I use one of the in 
ear thermometers and it would show like a little bit elevated temperature and then I was reading that those axillary I think is the name of those those thermometers measure temperature higher than what the oral thermometer would so I was like you know what screw it I'm just gonna get the best most expensive thermometer you can possibly buy the kind they use in doctor's offices and apparently this is it so I spent the money on this and uh, I mean it works well and it reads temperatures really quickly and sure as hell beats the like five dollar little digital thermometer I was using and I honestly would not trust and basically how it works is you take the probe out of the little well here and then you stick it into one of the probe covers and then you put it in your mouth and it just tells you the temperature in a few seconds and then there's a little thing that will pop off the plastic cover when you're done and then you put it back into the well. So hopefully with this, I will now be a little bit more certain about what my true temperature is if I'm ever feeling a bit paranoid. Okay, this next one I've had for a few years, I think I mentioned it in a video in the past, and it is a breathalyzer, a pretty professional one actually. And you're thinking, what on earth? Why do you have a professional breathalyzer that's what this whole video is about. And I don't even remember how I came across this. I think I was reading about breathalyzers one time, some article popped up, and then I was reading about the different types, and then I was looking at the different consumer levels, and then there was professional levels that are like authorized to be used by police, and this was one on the list. So I was like, of course, if I'm gonna get one of these, completely unnecessary gadgets, I have to get the professional level one. So that's what I bought. And really this is just for fun. You're having a party. It's like a, I don't know, gimmick. You could say, oh, how drunk are you? Oh, take the breathalyzer. Now, obviously I would not recommend using this as like a challenge. That would be a terrible idea. And certainly even if I have one drink, I have a policy, personal policy that I never drive even after having one drink. So it's not like I'm saying, oh, use the breathalyzer. Oh, I'm okay to drive now. No, that's not anything like that. If anything, I would use this to convince people if they want to drive after drinking, no, don't, look, you're over the legal limit anyway, something like that. So it can come in handy, uh, either for fun or for practical uses to tell people not to drive. So, hey, whatever. It's another gadget that I just happen to have. All right, up to number four, we have another device you've probably never heard of before. This is a capnometer. So specifically, the it's a Medtronic CapnoStream 35. And the purpose of this, it's a medical device, basically meant to measure the amount of CO2 in your exhaled breath. Yes, I know, this is a completely random list, but still pretty interesting. And funny thing about this, this is usually like a multi-thousand dollar medical device because healthcare costs, but I got it off eBay from some uh, medical device liquidation company for like a couple hundred dollars, so definitely at a heavy discount. Don't think I spent the full price on this. Anyway, this was another thing that kind of was inspired by the whole coronavirus. You know, I am not going to be using this to medically diagnose myself or anything. I was more reading about, I don't know, oxygen levels and CO2 levels and stuff like that and came across the name of this type of device which measures all that sort of stuff. So this has basically an input where you have cannulas, I think they're called, where you basically put it in your nose and then you exhale into it and there's a pump that puts it into this and will tell you the concentration of the exhaled CO2, the ETCO2, I believe, end tidal CO2 it's called. It also has an input for an oximeter, I believe it's called. It goes on your finger and then it will measure your actual oxygen concentration in your blood. So it'll measure your pulse rate, your breathing rate, all sorts of stuff. So to me, this is all just kind of interesting stuff, you know, fun fact type of thing. I don't really intend to use it for any real device. I don't really find it very practical, but still just a cool thing to have. All right, the next one I have also talked about in previous videos. This is a really bright flashlight. I believe it's about 32,500 lumens in one flashlight. This flashlight was a few hundred dollars and it's the Acebeam X80 GT. 
and you can see all the LEDs in here. And I'll try to show in a cutaway just how bright this thing gets, but it's extremely bright. I mean, if you looked into this directly for too long, it probably would blind you for a good amount of time. And one funny thing is you might notice this has an actual handle on it, and that is because this thing literally, when it's on its full maximum brightness, literally will get so hot that it will become uncomfortable to hold. So it literally has a handle on it. And the batteries in this flashlight are not normal batteries that you would use like AAA, AA. These are 18650 batteries, which are very common if you are looking for them, but you can tell they're absolutely huge. They're 3100 milliamp hours lithium batteries each, and there's four of them, and pretty much this entire housing fits those batteries. So that's why this is so thick and chunky. And if I'm not mistaken, this probably has some sort of temperature sensor in there and it'll actually automatically shut off. If you leave it on too long, it gets too hot. So it doesn't catch on fire or something like that. And even with these massive batteries in here, I don't think this will last very long on for brightness. I think it's only going to last like a few minutes top. So it, it draws a ton of energy, gets very hot. So this is not exactly a normal everyday flashlight that you would need. All right, up next, number six, we have a sound meter. Measures the loudness of things. This is a class one sound meter from Spur Scientific. And there's a couple different classes of sound meters. There's class one and class two. Class two is a little bit less accurate. And basically the whole purpose is to just measure the decibel level, the loudness of things around it. This one in particular costs about, I think $300. And I think when I originally bought it, I was looking up different uh, earbuds and was reading about ear damage and loudness levels. And that just kind of got me interested and curious about just how loud certain earbuds were and was I listening too loud, stuff like that. So of course I went out and bought the most expensive and accurate sound meter I could possibly find, which is this one. And obviously I'm being a little bit sarcastic. Of course, there are a lot more expensive ones when it comes to scientific instruments, but I wanted a class one sound device. And I believe this was actually the one of the cheapest class one sound meters. Anyway, you can see with this thing, which honestly has the color I can only describe as 1930s green, and it has lots of different settings. So you actually have to choose a range of decibels that is like an estimate, so 30 to 70, 60 to 100, and then 90 to 130. And then there's time waiting, which is gonna be fast or slow. So the fast one is like instantaneous, slow I think takes an average over maybe a second or a couple seconds. There's max hold where it'll just show you and stay at the maximum thing it reads. And there's also an interesting one is frequency weighting. So apparently there's a few different ways you can interpret sounds. There's the A frequency weighting, which kind of mimics the human ear more so where it cuts off the very high and very low frequencies that the human ear can't hear. And the C weighted is apparently more accurate at very high decibel levels, like above 100, it kind of more mimics the human ear. So there's lots of different settings on this. And you can see how it works, it's very simple. It'll literally just tell you the decibel level of what's around. So again, this is more of just a curiosity type gadget. All right, number seven, we have a compound microscope. You've probably used these in school. This is a medium range one, basically. I mean, these things can go into like thousands of dollars. This one was about 600 bucks. And the reason it's that expensive is because it has what's called a phase contrast kit with it, which basically means it's easier to see certain biological elements like cells and stuff like that. And it just has a couple different uh, extra objective lenses on there and just a kind of plate that you can see. This is the phase contrast plate. And it does something that I forget how it's described, basically just makes things look more contrasty. And I think this is just kind of a generic microscope brand, like basically made in China. I don't think there's, it's like a super scientific name brand or anything like that, but still cool. I believe I used this in one of my joke videos talking about how to increase your Wi-Fi speed or something like that. So just a cool thing to have. 
All right, number eight, we have something that's probably good for you fitness buffs out there. This is called a dynamometer, and this is a quite professional grade one. There are some that you can buy on Amazon that are way cheaper, like probably under $50. Basically, this just measures grip strength specifically. So you basically just squeeze as hard as you can on this thing, it'll tell you how hard you're pressing down on it. And specifically, this is a Jamar branded dynamometer. And I'll try to do a demo right here. I'll try to do it, but my hands are kind of sweaty. Sometimes it's hard, it starts to slip. I was only able to get about 105 pounds right there. I wasn't trying exactly hard. I wasn't trying hard, okay? But if you look at the documentation it comes with, it actually comes with a chart. It'll actually show you the average strength for men and women for different age groups. And for my age group, it shows at about 120 pounds. So I was able to do it at about 110. I really have not been working out. I've been really slacking. So in the past, I've definitely had it around 120 or a little bit more, but I'm kind of slacking on it now. Anyway, the reason I got one is I read that it was good for not just measuring overall kind of strength and for your grip, but it's also possibly a way to test overtraining. If you're overtraining too much and you find one day that your grip strength is extremely weak compared to normal, then maybe you should take that day off because you're just not recovering well enough, stuff like that. So that's just one reason I thought it'd be good to have. Anyway, finally up to number nine, we have a tech gadget that you may have seen in my previous videos. You can actually see it right now. This is the Axis Gear Blind System. It's basically a electronic blinds motor that'll raise and lower your blinds for you. And for what it is, it's pretty ludicrously expensive. It's like $250 normally. I think at the moment it's on sale for like 150 or something. The reason I got it was because the blinds that I have, they're actually pretty heavy. They're like blackout blinds and just reaching over the desk to freaking pull this thing up every single day gets kind of annoying. So I was like, I wonder if they make a gadget that'll do it for me. And they do make several, but apparently this one being so expensive, it's actually like the best one. It, the thing is, it's very, very slow. From what I understand, I'm not an engineer, but apparently gear systems, if you want it to be strong, you need it to be slow and vice versa. If you want it to be fast, it has to be not so strong. And considering it's a tiny little gear and it's actually pulling a deceptively strong amount of weight if you do pull down on it. So it's pretty slow. And it is supposed to tie into smart home devices like smart things from Samsung, but Literally, it does not work half the time. You can just press on it, which is usually what I do, but the smart home connection barely works, I gotta say. But still, it's better than leaning over every day and pulling it up. And yes, I know how ridiculous that sounds. Talk about a first world problem. So yeah, those are nine completely overkill, unnecessary gadgets that I have accumulated over the years. And if you're wondering if you should buy any of these, the answer is probably almost certainly no. There's probably cheaper alternatives for every single one that work almost as good. So you can just get something like that. But despite all that, I will put links in the description if you wanna specifically check out the things that I've mentioned in here, if there is a link available for it, of course. If you guys wanna keep watching, the next video I'd recommend is a review I did of my new LG TV that LG provided to me. So I didn't spend any money on that, but it is nice they gave me one. So I did a full review of that. I'll put that link right there if you wanna check that out. So thanks so much for watching, guys, and I'll see you in the next video. All right, so there you go. Uh, that was Theo Joe from audio from his video, nine totally unnecessary overkill gadgets and tools. And yeah, I'm not uh, particularly wanting any of those that he mentioned at all. All right, but next up, uh, I was going to go ahead and do coronavirus questions from the Ask the Experts section of the Consumer Report magazine uh, issues and Actually, they have a couple of gadget questions in this too. So <laughs> let's hit the first one. Is it crazy to use a meat thermometer to test for a fever? 
And when I first read that question, I'm like, yeah, it probably is. But here's what Consumer Report Magazine says. In a word, no. Medical thermometers are sold out at many places or were. I'm not sure if that's still the case when this was written, leaving consumers in the lurch. Though unorthodox and not officially recommended, placing a clean meat thermometer, preferably a digital one, which shows decimal points under your tongue could give you a general sense of your temperature. Use caution, some are sharp. We asked two doctors to try meat thermometers, Mary E. Schmidt, MD, an associate professor of clinical medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine and president of Schmidt and Libby Health Advisory Group, says hers read about the same as an oral thermometer over three takes, but was one degree Fahrenheit to one and a half degree Fahrenheit lower than a forehead reading with a temporal artery thermometer. Now, Georgine Nanos, MD, a family physician and CEO of the Kind Health Group in Encinitas, California, found hers to be too variable, and the temperature drops as soon as you pull it out of your mouth. CR reporter Rachel Rabkin-Peachman also tried her meat thermometer. It gave a reading comparable to her oral models. It took a bit longer to show a significant rise, but then it read in the 98-degree range, like my oral thermometer, she says. Granted, none of these meat thermometer readings are exact, but if you want to track trends in your temperature and you have no other option, it's better than nothing. If you call a doctor to report your temperature, note the type of thermometer you used. So there you go. Not so crazy, I guess. Of course, I do not have a digital meat thermometer. I have an analog one, so <laughs> I have to stick to my... Uh, I have one of those pressed-to-your-head thermometers. It seems to be working all right. All right, here's another gadget coronavirus uh, question. Why are people buying pulse ox, oximeters? What do you call it? Oximeters? And what are they anyway? Is that how you say it? Oximeters? Yeah. While there is little reason for a normally healthy person to have a pulse oximeter at home, one could be useful to those who believe they might have symptoms of COVID-19, says Elisa Sector Perkins, MD, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Boston University School of Medicine, who treats COVID-19 patients. A pulse oximeter, a device you can attach to your fingertip to measure the oxygen level in your blood, may help because sometimes a person with COVID-19 has low oxygen levels even before experiencing shortness of breath. One can cost $25 to $100 or more. Blood oxygen saturation levels that start trending downward could be a sign that your lungs are faltering and that you need to call your doctor. In general, experts CR spoke with uh, say they tend to start to worry when oxygen saturation levels in an otherwise healthy adult get under 92%. But people who use a home pulse oximeter should not fixate on specific numbers. Instead, consider all your symptoms and use the readings to get a general sense of oxygen levels and whether they are trending up or down. All right, so do we have time for one more coronavirus question? What's the best way to support local restaurants during the pandemic? Because that's really important now. 
with them, you know, up and down. Yes, you can open. No, now you can't. You can only serve so many people. You can only serve so many people this way, that way. So many people use third-party food delivery services such as DoorDash, Grubhub, Postmates, and Uber Eats. But these services have come under increasing scrutiny for the delivery and service fees they levy on consumer orders as well as the commissions they charge the restaurants they work with. A recent lawsuit filed against these businesses alleges that they charge exorbitant fees that drive up costs for consumers and restaurants. One way to avoid service fee is to order directly from the restaurant itself via the restaurant's own ordering website or by phone rather than going through a third-party delivery service. That allows the restaurant to avoid paying the commission and more of your dollars will go directly to the restaurant. If you do use a third-party service, order your food to pick up because some services charge the restaurant a lower commission for pickup than for delivery. So... There you go. Now, uh, also consider ordering more than one meal's worth of food at a time. Tonight's dinner and tomorrow's lunch, this boosts the restaurant's revenue. And you pay only one delivery and service fee. Now, we we recommend tipping the delivery driver the same way you would a restaurant server, at least 20%. And DoorDash, Grubhub, Postmates, and Uber Eats all say 100% of tips go directly to drivers. And even if it's a pickup order, consider tipping the restaurant too. Uber Eats offers consumers the opportunity to tip the establishment separately. All right, so there you go. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we got to support those restaurants because, you know... There's a lot of them out there, and then you just don't know what you have until it's gone. I mean, you know, when they're not making revenue, they're not paying taxes to your local municipality. Your local municipality doesn't have enough money to do this, that, and the other thing for you. And so, yeah, you know, try to support those as much as you can. And here's one more question. Is hand sanitizer just as good as washing with soap and water? And according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, your first choice should always be to wash hands with soap and water. It does a better job of getting rid of dirt, harmful chemicals such as pesticides, and certain types of germs, such as the highly contagious norovirus. All right. So always select hand washing over hand sanitizing. Of course, if you don't have a choice, um, they say you make sure you pick a hand sanitizer that has 60% ethanol in it. And do not select any of those hand sanitizers who have methanol in it, which is a wood alcohol, because that is poisonous. And of course, we've been going through recalls of those so hopefully they're taking all of those off of the shelf so if it doesn't have 60 percent ethanol don't consider it and keep away from those methanol um, uh, uh, hand sanitizers because they can be poisonous all right so That comes to the end of our show, so if you have any comments or any questions about what you heard on the show, of any products or or any services that you heard, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also at uh, Consumer Review Report on Facebook and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. 
And so if you have any ideas, those contact uh, information I just gave you are the same. You can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com, Facebook, Consumer Review Report, and Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So this is the Consumer Review Report on WMCK.FM. Heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. I'm Diane Rebecca wishing everyone a safe and good week.